How's life? Oh yeah, thanks, yeah. Anything exciting happened in the next in the last week besides my haircut? <laughs> no, pretty much tops of it. Uh, well, can anyone beat enjoying a black and white television and powdered eggs and a days in an Albuquerque last week? No, you know, because that's my life: haircuts and powdered eggs and black and white television. Um, anyway, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm a man of exotic travel. Uh, I'm also thankfully uh, a campus minister for RUF Reform University Fellowship. Um, RUF is a Christian campus ministry at New Mexico State that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the bored thrifter and the excitable prepster. For the student who runs NMSU, I mean like power lunches with Barbara Couture, and driving the Crimson Cab at night while also going to school, and the student who runs away from NMSU, which looks like taking every course online, uh, and their school pride left their body physically three years ago at a high school pep rally. That person, too, is welcome at RUF. RUF finally exists for those of you who are convinced that Jesus is not for you, and those of you who are convinced that Jesus is who and how you are. On a daily basis. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. Uh, we hope at RUF that we get to know you and that you get to know RUF. Uh, one way to do that is if you've been around for a while, introduce yourself to somebody new to you, uh, ask them a few questions, get to know them, invite them to Village Inn. Uh, also, if um, you're brand new, hey, thanks for coming. That takes a lot of courage. We love that you're here. We hope that you feel welcomed. We hope that um, you get to know uh, what we're about and uh, you enjoy your time with us tonight. Okay, let's talk about some announcements. So the, the sign-up sheet's going around for camping. Um, I'm just going to ask it to go back around, so we're just going to be signing up all night. Um, you know, so basically the sign-up is if you're interested in getting more connected with RUF, uh, if you want to join our email list, it's a good way to do that. Join our Facebook group, NMSU RUF. That's not on the sign-up sheet. It's just a clipboard. Okay, it's not a smart clipboard. It's not an app. Uh, it's just a clipboard. Uh, if look, if you signed up already for uh, the list, you don't need to sign up again. We're doing a new wrinkle where we're putting your where there's a place to put your number down if you want to get a mass text. Um, look, that's not like RUF coming on strong to you. Okay, like this creeper. Um, well, he's got a haircut. He still looks old. Um, but we're not. We're not doing that. We're just sort of investigating whether it would be easier to, to mass text as opposed to email and Facebook, as both email and Facebook get passed up by the cell phone era. Um, and if you're not comfortable with that, don't sign up for it. Okay, <laughs> it's that easy. No one's forcing you to do anything. So uh, also. T-shirts. Does anyone wear a T-shirt? Jimmy? Raise your three-quarter sleeve in the air. Okay, beautiful. Um, it's autumn. It's fall. It's time for the three-quarter length to come out. Okay? Those of you wearing tank tops still, shame on you. Those of you... I didn't look at anyone, obviously. Okay? So if you're like, want to leave right now, I'm sorry. Um, look, also, if you're wearing a short-sleeve shirt, look, I'm, I'm telling you, it's getting chilly. Okay? You've been out there at night. I'm worried about you. Don't get this cold I've got right now. Okay. Finally, look at your bulletin. There's plenty of stuff going on in RUF as usual. Uh, and I have an old bulletin, but uh, from September 18th, awesome. Okay. But basically, there's tons of stuff going on. You can please maybe take the next step. Oh, thank you, Stuart. This is what interns are for. <laughs> Jesus, I think. Um, okay, so now that I have a, a true bulletin, so notice we X off. Look at that handcrafted, beautiful Xerox. That we, we cut off the Friday stuff. With we're not meeting Friday for anything, except for the Great American Campout, known as the REF Camping Retreat. Um, look, I mean, some of you are bored. Some of you are feeling bold. You've signed up already. But some of you are thinking, man, I'm not sure I'm, I'm outdoorsy. You know, I don't wear a lot of flannel. Uh, I don't own a pair of anything boot-related. Loafers is the highest I go on my ankle. Uh, you know, like, that's okay. I'm not very outdoorsy either. On a good day, on a good day, 
I can't set up a tent. <laughs> it's not a good day, okay? So we have Eagle Scouts in our yard for that reason. So let's enjoy the fruit of their labor. Like, okay? So we can count on a few good REF Eagle Scouts to take care of us. So when it gets dark and I'm scared, I'm jumping into Miles' arms. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, dude. Okay. Now that I just got fired. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. Let's see if we can even transition after that. Uh, this, this semester in large group, what we're doing here, we've been looking at the I Am Statements of Jesus. Uh, we've been looking through the Gospel of John and looking at the places where Jesus describes who he is. So we've been looking at those places um, where Jesus talks to the people who've been following him around the Middle East, all over the Middle East, and to us, reading about these accounts 2,000 years later, and Jesus is saying things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life, and so on. So therefore, the working title of our study this semester is, I am defines who I am. Do you wake up seeing that yet? Do you wake up seeing that title like it's in your head? Um, it's like a beautiful jingle. Then my job is not done up here. I'm going to continue to repeat this weekly until we all wake up and sing, I am defines who I am. Maybe we can just get a catchy YouTube clip and we'll get it, we'll get it on. Okay. But seriously, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to capture what I think these passages are about. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to say that knowing Jesus, the I am, changes the way that we understand who we are. And not only that, knowing Jesus, the I am, doesn't just change how we understand ourselves, but it transforms, he transforms who we are, everything about us. So in order to know more about Jesus, we at RUF, are, I think the best course of action is to listen to what Jesus says about himself. Let's skip the metal man and hear it from the source, right? But some of you, maybe many of you in the room, think, man, I'm not so sure the Bible said is the source of all this stuff, okay? Maybe you think that's what you're supposed to think, or maybe you've taken a few history courses, or you've taken the Bible's literature, and you think, eh, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about this Bible, uh, whether it's trustworthy or not. Um, but let me ask a question to our doubts. Our doubts, okay? Ready? Where else should we go? Where else are we going to go? Okay? Where else can we go? Look, um, there are three or four total sentences about Jesus outside of the Bible in all of, all of Roman and Greek and Jewish history. About a paragraph. Okay, so are you going to base your understanding of a person based on a paragraph? And so here's my invitation to us tonight. Whether you call yourself an atheist or religious, vaguely, or Christian, or um, we all have to come to the words of the Bible to understand who Jesus is, to look at him properly. And we have to come to the Bible whether we're coming in the name of scholarship, or we have to come to the Bible whether we're coming in the name of faith. And so that's kind of the invitation tonight, and that's what we're looking at. So let's look again at Scripture tonight. We're going to look at John chapter 6, um, but let's recall where we've been. Last few weeks, we've talked about these I Am Statements. And we looked at Exodus 3 the first week, and, it's, and we learned that God defines himself by the word Yahweh, which the best English translation is I am. So when Jesus says, I am the door, or whatever else he says about I am, he's not saying, I'm a door. He's saying, I am God who is like a door, because I am is God. All right, so every time he says it, you should think about it capitalized. It's too bad the Bible doesn't capitalize it. I wish that would be, that would be actually better. My Bible. Okay, and then I'm going to start a cult, so let's not do that. So just read the Bible. Okay, anyway, so the other thing is looking at Jesus properly, okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a posture or an attitude of the heart. We've got to confess that we're not Jesus in order to see and behold Jesus as he really is and not the Jesus that we want to see. Okay, second, um, or third, and finally, we looked at, a couple weeks ago, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Last week we began looking at John 6, and it's a massive passage, and so I gave up. I cried uncle, and I said, we're going to split this into two. Um, I was talking to another pastor, and he said he split it into four or five things, so I feel a little bit better. Um, but we don't have that kind of time. Um, he, Jesus says here, I am the bread of life. 
I am the bread of life. And we started looking at it last week, and we're going to continue looking at it uh, this, this evening. So would you stand for the reading of Scripture? We're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 35 through 60. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 60. This is a lengthy portion, so I'd suggest getting your Bible out if you have one. Um, John, by the way, is before Acts, after Luke, okay, near the end of your Bible. If you, if you have a green or blue sheet, go ahead and look at that. Okay, John chapter 6, verses 35 through 60. John said to them, uh, as the crowd gathered, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will, he- and they will all be taught by God. It's a quotation of Isaiah chapter 54. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from me. Comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is he asking us to be cannibals? Is what they're asking, okay? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, as Jesus, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples, notice it's the disciples, not just the crowd, it's the people who left everything and followed him okay, for a living. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Friends, these are the words of God. They're more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I'm thankful that every one of us is gathered here uh, to hear from you. Uh, I pray that you would meet us where we are in the stillness of this room. I pray that you meet us with whatever baggage we brought into this room. I feel like I'm the chief baggage carrier. I pray, Father, that you'd help me to get over myself, that you'd help me to forget myself. I pray that you give us all ears to hear. I pray that you give us all uh, hearts to receive the goodness that you have for us in this passage. Lord, I uh, confess this last week. I'm not a fan of this passage in terms of preaching it. I love it, but it's so hard to preach because it kills everything in me that wants to please people. And I pray, Father, that you would help me to be faithful and true uh, and not just an insecure mess. I pray, Father, that you'd be with all of us as we hear your word, that you'd help us to attend to it with faith. Uh, Give us this faith. In your name we pray. Spirit, fill us. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. I'm sure we stiff after that one. Yeah. So... Look, I know it's like really, really hot outside still, okay? And some of you are, are downright angry, like more than upset about the fact that Walmart has Halloween costumes on the racks already. Like very bitter, okay? Maybe we need to talk about that. But 
Can we just talk about Christmas for a few minutes? <laughs> comes with every time, every year. Okay, there's a photo that sits in my parents' house in a frame on a table in the living room in Columbus, Ohio. And it captures what Christmas felt like for me as a kid. Let me describe this beautiful photo. There I am on Christmas morning with my older sister, sitting at the top of a staircase. Let me, uh, let me just put you there and what that looks like. Full, full visual image. Both of us are dressed head to toe in fleece red pajamas. Look, I just, like, you need to picture me. Same size head as now. <laughs> a tiny, frail, very breakable body. So if you're looking for a metaphor, think a marshmallow on a red fleecy toothpick. <laughs> That's sort of what it looks like. You're there? Okay. Um, my sister's holding on to a stuffed bear, and I'm holding out a plastic sword. I don't know why. And we're leaning forward over the stairs and peering into the darkness at the foot of the staircase. That's the picture. Each of us is smiling, yet we're peering intently at the darkness of a double set of doors that leads to the dining room, leads to the living room. We're trying to stare through these dark, closed doors to see inside of them to get a glimpse in that half-dawn light that's far too early for my parents, I'm sure, uh, to see what awaits us, those lights, those presents, that magic of Christmas morning. Are you there with me? Can we relate to this? Maybe you have a memory of something like this. Maybe it's a birthday or a holiday or a party. It's really not important that this is Christmas. It can be anything that made your childlike, your child-sized heart gasp in excitement. Anything that filled your spirit with light and awe and love. Okay, are you there? Let's go to the moment after. Okay, the moment after. The moment after you've raced down the stairs, you've furiously unwrapped the presents, you've opened and stacked and sorted all of the gifts that you've got. You've, you've scoured the tree, you've looked under the skirt, nothing's there, okay? You're done. And maybe this was all done in the harsh light of a 1980s video camera. Okay, wait, that's just my story? Let's not project too much of this on my time, okay? Um, anyway, that's the moment when you've examined all the toys you've asked for. All those toys that you wanted so badly that you wrote a list to anybody that would take a list. Like the Santa Claus in the drugstore, the North Pole, whatever that was. Your parents, certainly. Maybe your sister. Okay? And if you're anything like I was at that moment, there's this profound disappointment that sets in. Okay? You look at those presents and you know in your little childlike heart that they will end up in the back of a closet in a few months. And you think, is this it? There's a moment after this, there's wrapping paper everywhere, you're tired, you're thinking about breakfast, and you go, is this it? Is this what I was so excited about? What do I look forward to now? What can I get excited about now? What's next? I appreciate the way a favorite writer of mine, Frederick Buechner, puts it. And basically I'm just quoting this because I want to feel a little less alone in this moment. He says, it, he says it this way. It's a pretty long quote, but I think it's beautiful. A child on Christmas Eve or the day before his birthday lives for the presents that he will open the next day. And in that sense, we all live like children. There are so many presents still to be opened tomorrow, or next month, or next year. In a way, it's our looking forward to the presents that keeps us going in life. The unexpected friendship, the new job, seeing our name in the paper, falling in love, the birth of a child, all of these are presents that life can give us. And there is then the hope that if not tomorrow, the next day, then some fine day, somehow, life will finally give us the present, which when we open it, when we open this present, it will turn out to be the present that we've waited so long for. The one that will fill that empty place, but one by one as we open the presents, no matter how rich they are, no matter how wondrous they are, we discover that none of them, none of them by itself, nor all of them taken together, is the one that matches our deepest desires. That ultimately life by itself does not have that final present 
to give. What does Beekner mean by that? What am I getting at? What does he mean by saying life by itself does not have that final present to give? What does it mean that that thing which fills our emptiness, that gift, which is at the source, the fountainhead of our deepest desires, what does he mean that life in and of itself, the lives we live by themselves, can't give us that present? Of course, I think Beekner's point is related to my holiday disappointment that some of you maybe can relate to as well. We have what Beekner calls that empty place of our deepest desire, and we have a gnawing longing, a hunger within us. And even good things like lights and gifts and family can't satisfy that hunger. According to our passage tonight, John chapter 6, verses 35 through 60, only Jesus, only the bread of life, can satisfy that deepest hunger within us. Only only Jesus can give us what life itself can't give us, eternal life. What does eternal life mean? I love the way that Leslie Newbigin talks about it. He's a commentator. He says, eternal life means eternal satisfaction. Eternal satisfaction that begins right here, right now, in bits and pieces and tastes. All we must do is open wide our hearts and begin to enjoy the eternal satisfaction. All we must do is bring our hunger and our need to Jesus, the bread of life. It's a simple invitation to us tonight, but it's so hard. Bring your spiritual hunger, your nothingness, your emptiness to Jesus. Because Jesus promises to fill up your nothing with something eternal. To fill up your emptiness with fullness. The central invitation that Jesus repeats over and over and over again to us and to the crowd is the same. Bring your spiritual hunger to Jesus because Jesus promises to fill up your soul. Bring your spiritual hunger to Jesus because Jesus promises to fill up your soul. As I mentioned last week, that should sound familiar if you've been here, that this is a truth set in story. Hungry people are chasing Jesus across a lake into a Jewish church called a synagogue. And they begin questioning Jesus. And that questioning gets more and more intense until it becomes an all-outright interrogation and accusation. Since this is basically the same uh, general outline that I'm going to give you, I gave you last week, I'm going to give it again in shorthand version. And it goes like this. If you look, if you want to break down the passage, verses 25 through 40 of chapter 6, Jesus tells us, come and bring your empty hunger to me. Jesus is saying, come and bring your empty hunger to me in verses 25 through 40. Verses 41 through 51, Jesus is saying, believe in me who looks and feels so very ordinary. Believe in me who looks and feels so ordinary. And then third in verses 52 through 60, Jesus pleads with us, join your needy self to me. It will feel outrageous. Join your needy self to me. It will feel outrageous, verses 52 through 60. Again, last week we looked primarily at verses 25 through 40, what it means to hunger and what it means to bring our hunger, our emptiness to Jesus. And I'm going to briefly recap the discussion because I understand that new people come and go. And frankly, it's nice to get a recap for all of us because we don't, at least I don't remember like I used to. Um, But the majority of this week tonight we're going to look at verses 41 through 60. Okay, and what's said there? What it means to believe in a heart to believe in God. Okay, we're going to look at what it means to believe in a heart to believe in God. And then finally, what that belief looks like. How outrageous it is to join ourselves to that heart to believe God. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to look at. Um, but let me recap, and we'll start with verses 25 through 34. Again, this isn't on your bulletin, but they serve as a context, a backdrop, pointing to really one verse. Verse 35. And this is the verse that dares us to ask, what in the world is Jesus doing comparing himself to a loaf of bread? <laughs> why, why wonder bread, Jesus? Okay? Why sliceable goodness? What are you doing? And Jesus is making this comparison because the crowd, we struggle with two things I said last week, I'll say it again, cult, uh, food amnesia and disordered eating. 
Okay? Food, amnesia, and disordered eating. I'm going to be very quick. In John chapter 6, verses 31 through 32, Jesus corrects his audience's faulty understanding about what happened in the past to their ancestors. Right? They were, they were in the wilderness, the desert. You don't have to go too far outside Crucis to understand that. Okay? It's barren. There's no water. They're, they're hungry. You can only live off of, you know, Gila monsters so long. Um, anyway, like, all of a sudden, God, well, all of a sudden it starts raining bread, which they call mana, manna, okay? And it's raining down every day like the water, and it's like little wafers are clunking on their heads, okay? That's what happens thousands and thousands of years ago, about 1200 or so B.C. And what Jesus is critiquing is the people come to him and say, hey, you know what? Do us a miracle. Guess what? My, um, my ancestors, Moses did all that. Moses just opened up the heavens, and all of a sudden there were, there were wafers everywhere. Everyone had a little nugget of food. What are you going to do, Jesus? Still, you fed 5,000. Do it every day. Okay? Do it out of nothing, not out of loaves of bread and fishes. And so what Jesus is getting after there is sort of saying, look, um, he's saying that didn't come, those, that manna didn't come from Moses. It came from God. That's food amnesia. Okay? Just like our food isn't from our paycheck or Walmart or Albertsons or Toucans, our food is ultimately from the hands of God. He provides the soil, he provides the sun, he provides the hackers and the truckers and the checkout line uh, cashier. He provides all of that. Let's move on to verses 33 through 40. They expose our spiritual relationship to food. Okay? Most of us view food as a means to something else. That is, we have a goal in mind when we eat that has nothing to do with eating. That's the point. So when we look at food that way, um, we look at it a couple different ways. Some of us look at food as fuel. It's just fuel, but we don't stop to taste. Others of us are looking at food as a joystick, a joystick that we use to control how people see us. This looks like under-eating or protein binging to get noticed, to get affection. Or finally, for some of us, food is an elixir a medicine of self-comfort. And this looks like overeating to make life's pain and life's heartache go away, even if just for a few hours. The solution to our food-based problems, our food amnesia, our disordered eating, is to bring our hunger, to bring our pains, our heartache, our desire for affection, even, to Jesus to confess it all to him. To say, this is who I am. I'm a mess. Jesus in verses 35 through 40 is saying, come as you are, messy Sid, messy person. Bring me that emptiness and that hunger, that nothingness and that thirst, and I'll give you satisfaction. <coughs> Let me just clarify what that means. Jesus is not going to satisfy all your physical and social hungers until that last day. But he can meet those deeper spiritual rumblings for acceptance and comfort that are behind your social and your physical hungers. His promise to do this, to meet these deep-seated hungers, was signed, sealed, and delivered on the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Why else would he say, it's finished? It's done. Good is done. Jesus' wounds heal our wounds. His fullness fills our emptiness now and evermore. That's the point of these verses. Okay, recap over. Let's transition to new stuff, okay? Now let's turn our attention to verses 41 through 51 and the hard to believe Jesus. I want you to get in this story for a second. So we've just told in verse 24 through 40, Jesus, that historical person from Nazareth, has sat there and said things that clearly proclaim to everybody who's there, he's God. He just said, I'm God, in no uncertain terms. Okay. So verses 41 through 42, the crowd reacts to that statement, and they say this, Is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
You see, the crowd gathered around Jesus in Capernaum is a crowd from Galilee. They watched Jesus grow up. Okay? Jesus was the snot-nosed ankle-biter who wet the bed and cried out for food when he was hungry. Jesus was the neighborhood twerp who skated down the hallways of Galilee Middle School on Healy's. <laughs> Jesus was the carpenter next door who quietly helped the family business stay afloat with his father and his brothers. And the crowd can't believe that that Jesus, this same Jesus I watched grow up, who I squeezed his cheeks and said, look how big you're getting. That Jesus is the same Jesus that's saying he's God. He's come down from heaven. How is it possible that God would become a man? That's the question behind the question. How does the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God How does that God become finite and very changeable? A toddler, a boy, a man. To paraphrase the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, why would God have no beauty that we should desire him? Why? Or to bring more to the point of it all, again, Leslie Newbegin writes, how can a man with a known name and a known address be God. How can a man with a known name and a known address be God? And if we're honest, these aren't just the questions of the crowd there. There are questions. Wherever you are with Jesus, this is your question. This is my question. At some level, at the level of deep desiring, at a place that the gifts of life can't even touch. But how does Jesus answer the crowds, our questions? How does he answer the accusation that he's a fake, a fraud God? How does he answer that question? Does he thoroughly explain his childhood when he wet the bed? He says, well, I didn't sin. Or when he got in, when he got in trouble, well, I wasn't actually in trouble. Okay? Does he actually, does he go and say, go through his childhood like that? Does he smite the crowd with lightning bolts shaped like French baguettes? No, he doesn't do any of those things. What does he do instead? He gives us a lengthy theological discussion okay, about how salvation works, of all things. Look at verses 43 through 51. That's what we're going to spend some time in. And really, the best I can do, because I could sit there and spend every single verse, I could spend probably like probably three or four days on each verse. Okay? But let me just do one verse that I think summarizes the whole of it. Verse 44. Verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I, Jesus, will raise him, whoever comes to Jesus, up on the last day. Let me do it without my parentheses. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So this verse seems clear enough, right? Without knowing anything about the firestorm, about this, like the theological canons that are going off somewhere in the written words of people much smarter than me, this verse passes the common sense test, right? Okay? We understand sort of what's going on. And its point is repeated not just in verses 43 through 51, but also above in verses 36 through 40. Just look at verse 37, for instance. There he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Sounds very similar okay, to verse 44. It also seems clear that Jesus is saying two distinct things. First, the reason that anyone denies that Jesus is God, the reason that anyone doesn't come to Jesus, is because Jesus' Father, God the Father, doesn't make that person come to Jesus. First point gets harder. Second point, Jesus is faithful to keep all of those people who believe in his presence. If it's a true belief, we will not stop believing in Jesus, even unto the last day. Okay, we're going to talk about this. This is hard stuff, but this is what the Bible teaches. I'm a Bible teacher. I have to give you what I think the Bible says. I'm not going to run around it. I'm not going to hide from it. We're going to talk about it. 
So let me do the best I can to explain what this means. I don't have time to defend every single nuance of difficult salvation mechanics. Okay? We can meet later. We can talk about that at Village Inn, whatever. Okay? But let me defend the most offensive part. Okay? God has to save us, even from our unbelief. God has to save us, even from our unbelief. Some people say that the word draw in verse 44 means woo, or entice, or persuade. So that what they mean is Jesus is saying, God the Father woos folks to Jesus. Okay? This would mean metaphorically that God the Father is a salesperson trying to sell Jesus as God, and that we as the good, religious, smart consumer can choose to buy Jesus. Buy that he's God. Okay? But grammatically, this interpretation doesn't stand up. Again, I'm going to show you how to interpret through going through this verse. We've looked at something that scripture interprets itself. It's redundant. It's been said over and over again. I'm going to talk about grammar. I'm going to talk about history. I don't know how else you decide what, how to interpret verses. I just don't get it. Okay? So bear with me. Grammatically, this interpretation doesn't stand up. The word draw does not mean the word woo. The Greek word translated draw is the word helko. Helko, which actually means to drag or to, or to compel. Okay? God compels us. He drags us to believe the impossible to believe. That Jesus is God. Do we get that God must save us? God must save us, even and especially from our very unbelief. From our ability to choose poorly. Okay, so other people say the word draw can't mean compel because it's used in other contexts, in other Greek passages, uh, in the first century to mean drawing water out of a well. So the argument goes like this. Do we compel water out of a well? No. But this historical objection is met by a guy named R.C. Sproul in a debate. It's a beautiful, let me just read it, because I'm not smart, as smart as R.C. Sproul, probably not as smart as the guy who was debating, okay, but we'll do the best we can. He says this to the question, do we compel water out of a well? Let me ask you in return, how do you get water out of a well? Do you stand up there and look down and say, here, water, water, here, water. Do you woo water up? Of course not. The water is lifeless. You have to go and get it. It's not able to come out of the well for you. Okay? So to use this well metaphor, we're the water, God's the farmer, trying to get some water. Okay? To get us out of the well, God must drag us entirely by his own effort. Our sin affects our ability to believe, to come to God that much. We are dead, that is lifeless, in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. So what? Some of you are sort of angry, some of you are bored. Why is this debate even important? Why, what are you trying to say, Sid? Who cares? I'm saying this because Jesus says this. This is how he explains why people don't believe him. Why certain people in the crowd get it and say, look, Peter, you've got the words of life, where else do we go? And other people sit there and say, you're crazy, I know you, you wore pampers. Okay? <laughs> you're not God. This is why certain friends and family die not believing in Jesus, despite the most moving life experiences, despite your and my best arguments. Okay, second, let me clearly state what I'm not saying. Because it's super important. This is a very hard topic. Again, something I don't like talking about. But I love talking about ones in the scripture. Okay? I do not think the passage is saying this. I don't think Jesus is saying, you and I are robots. Remote controlled from heaven by God. Okay? We're not robots. Just like we have to understand that God uses farms and Albertsons to provide us with food, we have to understand that God also uses our free will, our coming to him, to save us. Okay? Please do me a favor. Don't flatten out God's causation. Don't flatten out the way that he explains how he does things in this world. Because God uses means. He uses means like grocery stores. He uses means like science and laws of science. And he uses means like free will and coming to him. God is perfectly in control and we're perfectly free. It's a both and, not an either or. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, yes. 
Okay? It's a mystery, clearly. It's beyond all of our pay levels. That's why we're not God, and God's God. Okay? Third and finally, this is important because it should lead us to humility and greater faith. I am so sad that people will, t- will talk about this chapter to you, and they will beat you over the head with it. I'm so sad because that's the opposite of humility and greater faith. It's hard sometimes. I feel guilty by association. I do. Okay? you heard of it? I mean, it's just sad. But if salvation is not up to me or the talents I bring to the table, then I get humble pretty fast. If God cares enough about me to drag me out of my sins, if God cares enough about me to promise that he won't drop me, that is grounds for incredible confidence in God. In other words, I get to continually tell myself this. Sid, you can totally, you can't totally wreck your relationship with God. You can wreck and mess up a lot of other things, but it's but God in your life is not up to you, it's up to God, ultimately. Okay? He's the one who promises that he won't drop you. He's the one that you trust in all of this. Do we see that that kind of faith isn't an excuse to do whatever I want to sin all the more? It's actually a, a, uh, an encouragement to be and to do more holiness. Because finally and fully, I can motivate my failure of a self to go and love people boldly and powerfully in the name of Jesus. It's a huge deal for me. Okay, anyone offended yet? Okay, not too bad. No one's gotten up and left, I don't think. Maybe they got before I started. That's okay. I appreciate you hearing me out on that. Again, um, let me do some theological damage control. At the end of the day, I have to tell you what I think the Bible says, and this is what the Bible clearly teaches to the best of my knowledge. Okay? If that's not your opinion, that's fine. Totally fine. Okay? You're still welcomed and loved here. Many students who call RUF home don't agree with me on this issue. And I'm more than happy to discuss this issue with you at Village Inn or over a cup of coffee. I'd love to hear your opinion and where you're getting your opinion. And I, I promise you I will do my best to be humble and gracious. Okay? RUF wants to be a place where you can be in process about your theology. We want to be in a place where you can, you can question whether you believe in Jesus and you can question how believing in Jesus works. I trust there's room to disagree and to question in the confines of community. That's beautiful. That's what college is about. That's okay? a time to discuss things that are hard and painful, um, that are somewhat sometimes offensive, and to come to terms okay, with that with other people. And I hope that's what RUF's about, too. Okay, well, for the few people who aren't offended in this room, let's talk about cannibalism. <laughs> now, does Jesus assert that God, God works in our salvation, he also tells us our salvation looks like eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. Now we're all offended. And in verse 52, the crowd, we throw up the red card and we shout, Cannibalism! Cannibalism! What are you talking about, Jesus? How are you getting away with this? But when Jesus tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood in verses 53 through 58, this should remind us of us remind us of an earlier verse. Verse 35. Okay? In verse 35, Jesus tells us, coming to him makes us not hungry. Therefore, coming to Jesus is feeding on his flesh. Okay? In verse 35, Jesus tells us, believing in him makes us not thirsty. Therefore, Believing in Jesus, believing that Jesus is God and that he can spiritually nourish us. Believing in Jesus is drinking his blood. But before you accuse me of spiritualizing the text too much, okay, there are Greek words that translated, the words translated eat and flesh have a very physical meaning to them and usage. Okay? This physical concreteness, though, does not lead automatically to cannibalism. I think instead it leads to the Lord's Supper, at least to communion. It leads to the table. Okay? That's sacrament. In communion, we physically eat bread that represents Jesus' body. In communion, we 
we physically drink wine that represents God's blood, or Jesus' blood. Okay? But the bread and the wine are not physically Jesus' body and blood. Why? Why? Because Jesus' human body is just like ours. Okay? It's a human body. It can only be in one place. Not every place. And that one place is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Okay? At the same time, when we drink the elements and eat the elements of communion, we're not just play-acting cannibalism. Okay? We're not playing house with cannibalism. Okay? We're really and truly spiritually feasting on Jesus. Remember, Jesus' divine nature, not his human nature, is omnipresent. That is, it can't be limited to one place or time. Why? Because Jesus created every place and created time itself. That's what God did. That's the definition of God. So what? Another lengthy, dense theological discussion. Again, Sid, you're killing me. Why are we talking about this? First, if you believe Jesus is God, communion is an important way to practice your faith. It is. Can I just give a plug for communion? Can I give a shout-out okay, to communion? If you come with faith, communion can spiritually fill the deep internal emptiness inside of us. It can touch that deep desiring. It can fill and touch us in ways that life can't even touch. It can fill and touch us in ways that prayer and singing can't. Second, our relationship with Jesus is not a hit and run. It's not a one-night stand. Okay? We are called to run to him, to lean on him with all of our needs all of the time. That is, every day, every hour, hour by hour, moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second. In prayers of confession, in prayers of expectation, when we devour the word by reading it, and taking communion, we're called to do all of these all the time. Okay? That's how we feed and feast upon Jesus. Spiritually. You see, Jesus doesn't stop our hunger. This is really important. Okay? He doesn't stop our hunger. He feeds it continually. There's a huge difference, right? It's not like we stop hungry. He gives us food to eat with that hunger. Continually. So the constant pangs of hunger that we feel, those longings are meant to draw us to him constantly. So when you're hungry, and you're a Christian, you say, I shouldn't be hungry. That's what everyone promised me since I was in youth group. You're supposed to be hungry. He doesn't kill your desire to eat. He gives you something to eat himself. Okay, so verse 60 appropriately ends this passage. A choice. Will we listen to this hard saying of Jesus. The disciples call it a hard saying of Jesus, okay? You, you and I have not given up everything we called him, okay? None of us owned a fishing industry and came here, okay? So we're not in that category. Where will we take our outrage at Jesus is another question. Will we take, where will we take our outrage at Jesus who looks all too human, who makes us feel needy all the time? Where are we going to take that outrage? Uh, that outrage? Are we going to take it to Jesus? Where will we take our hunger? Where Will we continue to wait on life's precious moments? Or will we take that hunger to Jesus? Through prayer and communion? Through reading the Bible? I remember the first time I took communion, and I'm going to end with a story, so if you're worried, don't worry. Um, I had only been a Christian for a week before I took communion, a week or so. And I remember wrestling all that week with whether or not God was real. I was wrestling with whether God was real, and I was wrestling with whether God, whether Jesus was really God. And I remember wrestling with whether in church I should even take communion, because that was where I was. But I took this hunger, this outrage even, to God at that moment. I drank the spiritual blood, and I ate the spiritual body of Jesus. And there was this great moment afterwards. Let me set the scene for you. It was a beautiful September day, so my sophomore year of college, I became a Christian my sophomore year. And I was in the back seat of my friend Joel's hatchback, powder blue, Honda Civic. <laughs> Pleather seats, beautiful. <laughs> and there I was, sort of like sprawled out, because it's pretty small and I'm a big man. 
And uh, I was looking out the window over the bridge, kind of watching that we were, we were crossing a lake at the time. And I remember looking out over the window and over the, over the bridge and over the water. And I remember looking back through, the, through that rear glass, that real, rear, rear window, and looking up, because it's a hatchback, and into the sky, okay, in all of its blueness and all its beauty. And I remember feeling something very distinctly. That was the first time in my entire life I tasted spiritual rest. That was the first time in my entire life that I tasted what it was like to be in union with Christ, to abide with him as he abides with me. What is that called over and over and over again in the Gospel of John? Eternal life. That's eternal life. There I was in the backseat of a Honda, and I tasted some of what I had longed for on that staircase, Christmas after Christmas morning. I tasted Christ, the reality that all of that light and all of that laughter and all of those presents pointed to. My point is not a political tagline. Don't take this away. Don't say, well, Sid just taught me to remember the reason for the season. Okay? That's not my point. This isn't a Christmas sermon. My point is that the hunger we feel, the hunger we feel whether we're, we call ourselves Christian or whether we call ourselves something else, my point is the hunger is worth the wait. The hunger is worth the wait. In the words of Frederick Buechner, there will be Christ enough soon enough. There will be Christ enough soon enough. Would you pray with me? Father, this was long. Um, people are restless. They're angry, perhaps. Um, we're tired. We're bored. Um, we're not sure if this was Sunday school or not. And I pray, Father, that you would use all of that to your glory. That, Lord, we would rest in you, we would taste eternal life, whether it's the first time or whether it's the hundredth time. I pray, Father, that you would teach us what it means to taste and to see that you're good. I pray that you would help our hearts that hunger, that rumble with hunger, to direct that hunger to open wide and feed on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.